You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn East. In Ecclesiastes, we discover that a life spent in pursuit of pleasure, achievement, and control will ultimately leave us empty-handed. Life isn't about what we can obtain, but about what we already have, and learning to receive it from God with gratitude. Welcome to Ecclesiastes, life as gift, not gain. Our scripture this morning comes from Ecclesiastes 3.16 through 4.3. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. And in the place of justice, wickedness was there. And I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked. For there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. I also said to myself, as for humans... God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows if the human spirit rises upward, and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. So I saw that there's nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work, because that is their lot. For who can bring them to see what will happen after them? And again, I looked up and I saw the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Hey, good morning. Let me pray as we begin today. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you thanking you for this opportunity Thank you for Father's Day. Thank you for family. Thank you for the freedom we have to to worship and to gather. And thank you for Holy Scripture that continues to instruct and teach us. And I pray that even now you would open uh, my mouth and open our hearts and minds to hear from you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Way back on September 10th of 1999, Bullet Central High School senior Jessica Dishon went missing from her home in Shepherdsville, Kentucky. 17 days later, they found her body near Mount Washington, and I will spare you the details, especially for the younger people in the audience, but the situation was as bad as you might imagine. Now, her next-door neighbor... Um, named David Bucky Brooks, diminutive in stature, uneducated, a worker in his family's water business. He was charged, he was arrested, and he spent two years in jail awaiting his trial, and everyone was just relieved that they had caught him. However, in 2003, his case ended in a mistrial due to a botching up of the evidence on the part of the prosecutor's part, and so Everyone knew Bucky had done it, and they'd only gotten off on a technicality, and so the prosecution started to put together another case against him. Now, meanwhile, as you can imagine, especially in smaller rural Kentucky, 
Bucky's life was over. Even though he'd gotten out of jail, um, he really couldn't outrun what he had done. He and his family had to move continually. There was constant shame and, and public rejection because this brutal murderer got away on a technicality. Again, the trial and the news reporters hounded him. They made a lot of fact out of the fact that he was, wasn't very educated, and so he struggled to find work. Everyone knew he did it. His, his wife, Irene, stuck with him. They had five children. And even though he got away with it, his life really was ruined financially and every other way. And in that sense, there was some recompense for his crime, even if, though it didn't really provide the kind of justice that we would want in closure for his family. But the real problem was that Bucky actually didn't do it. Thanks to some informants in jail and a cold case investigator, the police finally realized that it wasn't Bucky at all. Jessica's killer was her own uncle who was since in jail for some very heinous crimes. And so in 2015, 12 years after Bucky was released, the uncle confessed and pled guilty. So understand this, for over a decade, Bucky and his family had this dark cloud hanging over them that ruined them financially, damaged their children, their entire family, resulted in the loss of their business, his inability to get a job. He had to be forced to move continually. And just a few days ago, just last week, Bucky died in his sleep of natural causes. And he's remembered with this headline, man wrongly accused of murder has died. How do you feel about all that? What's coming up for you? How, how do you process all of that? I mean, the, the sense of injustice, the unrighteousness of that entire situation is overwhelming. The injustice and the unrighteousness of the suffering and death of the 17-year-old girl, the years of lack of closure and the pain for her family, the, the botched up investigation that charged the wrong man, Bucky's own suffering and his family for over a decade having been wrongly accused. The actual murderer got a plea bargain so he only was in jail for manslaughter. And then Bucky died and he never was acquitted technically, they just dismissed the case, he never heard a not guilty. And then now that he is dead, what he's known for, the headline for his obituary is man wrongly accused of murder. All of that injustice, all of that unrighteousness is overwhelming and makes our blood boil. For somebody in the first service who knew the family was involved with them and his blood was boiling afterwards, that is the right response. We don't have to be taught to feel in our bodies and our bones the wrongness of that whole situation. But what do we do with all this? We could multiply out thousands of other examples and stories from history and from today all over the world. What do we do with that sense of injustice? Well, today as we continue our series through the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, we've We've reached, as you just heard, a really dark text. We've reached a dark subject. And if you've been with us, you know that this Old Testament book of wisdom is very unsettling at many points. It's not a comfortable book. And this text alone, I mean, as I heard that read again, I thought, is that really in the Bible? I mean, it's so dark. 
And as a reminder, the book of Ecclesiastes is doing something very uncomfortable, very important. It's inviting you and me to be honest and authentic about the complexity and the frustration and the disappointments of our lives under the sun. You see, the Bible is very real. It's not some book of fairy tales and just kind of happy platitudes. It is the creator inviting us to take an honest look at ourselves and to understand him and ourselves correctly. And believe me, it would have been super easy to skip this text today. <laughs> I thought about it all week. Can we kind of work this out so I don't have to preach this text, especially on Father's Day? But I believe God and his divine appointment has an important word for us to help us understand our lives in relationship to him as our father even today. And the constant refrain of Ecclesiastes is, is really summed up in one Hebrew word, hebel, which means smoke or vapor or futility or frustration and elusiveness. And in our text today, what we just read and we're going to look at here for a minute we can really sum this up as unrighteousness under the sun. Because in our text for today, the wisdom teacher really is going to touch on a subject that I think gets to the core of our sense of frustration with life, when bad things happen and there's no justice, when there's unrighteousness. Because this sense of unrighteousness and injustice and being wronged and seeing others wronged is really one of the things, I think, that makes us feel how frustrating and difficult and complex our lives really are. Look at the text again. If you have a Bible, I encourage you, bring a Bible to church. It's a great thing to do. Pull it up on your phone as well. We'll put it up there, but bring a Bible, but turn either way to Ecclesiastes 3.16. Look at what it says there. Read these verses again. And he says, the teacher says, I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wicked, wickedness was there. And if you let your eyes go down just a few more verses to the beginning of chapter four, he brings it up again. He says, again, I looked and I saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors and they have no comforter. So what's the teacher talking about? Well, in verse 16, I think he's primarily talking about the court system. That is the place where justice should happen. He's saying he sees wickedness there. And that was true in ancient times, and it's true all over the world today as well, many places, that courts are often a place of bribes and payouts and corruption. I mean, try navigating the court system in Colombia or Chad or communist Russia or ancient China. Now, I would rather live in the United States than any other place in the world for, and we've lived other places for a lot of reasons. One of them is that even though our justice system isn't perfect, I think it's generally better than most of them. But even so, there are always loopholes and biases and bungled cases and bad lawyers and bad juries and bad judges. And we really need, even in our pretty just system, we need lawyers. And I have a lot of friends who are lawyers. We have a lot of lawyers in our church. And they, they would say the same thing, I'm sure. If you ever try to read a legal document, it's like it's written intentionally so non-lawyers cannot understand what in the world it's saying, right? And the, re the reality is that we need other people to help us navigate a system that, in which we're very powerless. And that's even in a very just system like ours. Imagine how overwhelming it would be otherwise. And this is what the teacher of Ecclesiastes is looking at. He's saying, even in a place where there should be justice, there's corruption, there is frustration. And then I think when he, gets, when he brings it back up in chapter four, 
I think he really starts to broaden it out to help us see that it's not just about the courts. It's about this deeper and deep sense that this is not just a legal legal issue that injustice is, but it's a human issue. That all aspects of life under the sun has both macro corruption, macro frustration, and micro as well. And the truth is that unrighteousness and injustice exists in our lives at every level, whether we're talking about a country that unjustly attacks another country and all the suffering and the pains and pain that comes from that, if we're talking about a people group and a kind of genocide situation that tries to eliminate another people group, whether it's Nazi Germany or Croatians and Serbians or Pol Pot and Cambodia, you can name it. Whether you're talking about a person attacking another, whether it's just random acts of violence, carjackings, physical harm, sometimes small, sometimes large. Our neighborhood this past week, maybe some of your neighborhoods experienced this as well, had a lot of people or people going through the neighborhood and opening doors and stealing things out of them. I forgot to lock the van. And when I went in there the next day, there was like stuff strewn everywhere. And it just, and then there were, I took a walk that morning and there was like mail. Somebody had gone through all the mailboxes in the neighborhood and strewn everything, looking for things. It was small, but I just felt the wrongness of it. But maybe it's something more significant and lasting like child abuse or neglect of the elderly. We feel in our bodies, the injustice, the unrighteousness of it. Sometimes it's when people harm others. Sometimes it's just bad things that happen. Cancers, slips downstairs or other fluke accidents, viruses, floods and storms. And it can just feel so unfair. Maybe in your workplace, you don't get the credit you deserve or are overlooked and disregarded. Maybe you're near the end of your career and you used to have the power and the influence and now, even though you've served faithfully, nobody cares about what you have to say. That feels unjust. Maybe based on racial issues, you've been treated unjustly. Maybe based on gender, you've been treated unjustly. Maybe today if you're married, you feel the unrighteousness and injustice of a spouse who's been unfaithful to you, or maybe neglectful or critical and unsupportive, maybe just absent emotionally. It's not what you wanted. It's not what you said to each other on that happy day when you made your vows. Last week, I was in Texas preaching and teaching, and in the providence of God, I had some significant times of counseling and and prayer with some people, a man whose father had just suddenly died just a couple days before, and he felt God told him to go to church. He hadn't been in church forever. He showed up, and just the, the brokenness that he felt of, the, uh, of what had happened. And another woman I spoke with has cared for her children very well, and she's got a son who just won't even talk to her anymore, even though she's done nothing but tried to be caring for him. They felt in their bodies. You and I feel in our bodies this brokenness, this unrighteousness. And all these are examples of the unfairness and the injustice that marks our life under the sun. And again, the teacher is putting his finger right on it. And he's saying, this is actually what's going on more than we care to realize. Maybe you've heard the story of the extremely wealthy guy. If I were to mention his name, you'd know his name, who had huge stock portfolio, lots of land and income, well-regarded in the city he lived in, large family that all loved each other. 
good wife, good friends. And in a sudden accident, his family was killed. And then due to evil people, he, was, he lost everything he owned. And then he himself got terribly sick and was writhing in pain. And then to make it all worse than ever, his friends all turned on him and said it was all his fault. There's probably other people we could name, but I'm thinking about a story from the Bible, and that is Job. In fact, the more I thought about it this week, I recognized Job is a story that is sort of unpacking exactly what the teacher of Ecclesiastes is saying here. That someone who, if there's anyone who had experienced injustice and unrighteousness, a good man who lost everything, it was Job. And this is what the teacher is saying. He looks at it and says, Hebel, this is, this is frustrating. It's uncontrollable. It makes life feel meaningless. So what do we do? What do you do with all those emotions and those thoughts? Well, the result is, honestly, if, we, if we're honest, is despair. And this is what makes sense of these verses. Look back with me at 18. Again, as I said, every time I read these, I think, okay, can we kind of cut those out of the Bible? Because that, <laughs> that seems really the wrong thing to say. But you, the reason we don't cut it out of the Bible is because this is an honest response of despair. Look at verse 18 again. So in the midst of all this feeling of injustice, he says, I said to myself, as for humans, God tests them so they may see that they are like the animals. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust. To dust return. Who knows if the human spirit rises upward and the spirit of the animal goes down to the earth. So I saw there's nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work because that's their lot. Who can bring, for who can bring them to see what will happen after them? This is dark. This is a dark and honest moment. Have you ever felt that way? This is what the, the teacher is saying here. This sense of like, does any of this matter? All this stuff, I'm supposed to be out church and live my life. Have you ever felt like, is this even real? Like when you see injustice done to you or to someone else, this is the honest response in these honest moments to say, is, does any of this even mean anything? If they've ever felt that way, that's okay. It's right here in the Bible too. And then look at verses two and three of chapter four, just below. He says, and I declare that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive, but better than both is the one who's never been born, who has not seen the evil done under the sun. This, this sense of injustice, this brokenness, this despair is so great that our teacher really wonders whether life is worth living. I know some of you have been in that dark place. Some of you maybe not based on temperament or experience, but I know a lot of people have sensed that this is not, I can't fix this. This is not worth going on. I just wish I could escape through death by suicide or attempting that. And this is the place of dark despair that the teacher finds himself in as well, overwhelmed by the brokenness and unrighteousness of the world and inability to fix it. And the irony is that the reason you and I feel this way is because what he just said earlier in chapter three, that God has set eternity in our hearts, meaning that we have a deep DNA level sense of what is right, what is good and true and beautiful. And so when we look out on the world and are honest and see how much it is not the case in our own lives and the case of others, we feel that so deeply 
Because, precisely because we're made in God's image, we feel the brokenness and the result is despair. And so we have to ask, okay, that's the human experience of it. What does God think of all this? What does God think of all this? Well, we only get a tiny hint of it in our text. If you look back at chapter 3, verse 17, the teacher says, I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. So the teacher acknowledges that God exists, God will do what is right, but that's all he's got. And it's really mostly surrounded by a deep sense of despair. And so I think we can ask, when we think about the whole Bible, what is God's view on this deep sense of unrighteousness and injustice and brokenness in the world? Well, actually, for thousands of years, humans have asked that question. In fact, this is what I think is probably the most difficult theological problem that has ever existed. We call it the problem of evil. That if God is all good and he's in control, how is there evil in the world? And, and is he responsible for it? And, and how does that work? And that question has perplexed people, especially people in the midst of suffering, forever. And for thousands of years, people have tried to answer it in different ways. Some people would answer it with what's called deism, that they'd say, yeah, there's a God, but he just started the world and now he has nothing to do with it. Other people on the other extreme would have kind of like a hard determinism. God does whatever he wants. He causes everything to happen, even bad things, so deal with it. But what a lot of people would say is, this is so overwhelming that there just there must not be a God. This is all just natural forces. Many people, I think, would go the way of, of a very, very famous rabbi that going back in the 80s wrote a, or a book that millions of people have read, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. He's dealing especially with like the death of a child. Harold Kushner was the guy's name. And a lot of people have been really helped by this book. And what Kushner basically argues is, yes, God exists. He's all good, but he's not all powerful. Is that the hope of the Bible? That God's good, but he's not all powerful? In fact, when you read the Bible, you might be surprised to see how often the Bible is addressing this question of how in the world do I understand all the bad I see in the world with God being good? It's a repeated theme all throughout the Bible. And I think there is a mystery here that can never be fully explained. And this is why Job and Ecclesiastes are given to us. They're, they're given to us to sort of face the complexity of this without simplistic formulaic answers. See, if you just have this formula like, well, if you do good, good things happen. You do bad, bad things happen. And that, that is generally true. And that's what something like the book of Proverbs teaches us. But what Job and Ecclesiastes are saying to us is that simplistic formulaic view is not enough to explain the complexity and the frustration of real life when actually bad things do happen to good people. It's not a formula. And I think us trying to understand it is understandable but I think it's like, I think Kevin used this, Pastor Kevin used this analogy last week of understanding things is kind of like our dog understanding us. Like how much does our, does our dog really understand about your life, right? Like, do I go to my dog for parenting advice or marriage counsel? No, <laughs> my, my dog cannot understand the complexity of my life. I think that's an analogy for us trying to understand how what is true is that God is all powerful and he's all good. There's a mystery there. There's an inscrutability that we have to just receive that we cannot understand, but we can affirm those things are true. And you know what the Bible also says God thinks about this? This is the most important thing. 
that God is at work setting the world to right. That's what it means for God to be righteous, that he does what's right and he is setting the world to right. In Christianity, we talk a lot about salvation, meaning forgiveness of sins, that I can have my sins forgiven. We sing about this and that's wonderful and that's absolutely true, that's non-negotiable. But what I'd like you to understand is that that truth is actually part of a much larger truth that from creation to new creation, God is setting the world to right. Ever since the fall, God who is good is setting the world to right. He is at work and the end game of God's work in the world is the shalom, the flourishing, the setting. That's not just about me personally receiving forgiveness of sins, it's about the world itself being redeemed and set to right because God cares about that. He is a God of righteousness and he will and is setting the world to right. And the way the, way the rabbis talked about this was this great phrase that I love, tikkun alam, which means world repair. This is a great way to think about the message of the Bible. And God's activity, his mission in the world is the repair of the world, tikkun alam. So what do we do then? So we who have eternity set in our hearts, we see this, we acknowledge that God is powerful and good and is at work. What do we do? Well, at this point, I could talk about righteousness and being involved, which we should be in doing good in the world, joining God in his active mission in the world, that would be an appropriate and good sermon. And actually, up until Friday, that was the sermon I was going to preach. (laughs) But as I prayed and pondered this week, and especially as I talked to my wife about this, and if you ever want to know if there's a sermon of mine you like and a sermon of mine you don't like, the difference is whether I talk to her about it or not. (laughs) And this is what happened this week. As we were talking and, and pondering this, I realized I think God wanted me to say something different today. As good as it is to invite you to participate in God's good work in the world, that's a good thing. I think God has a slightly different word for us today. And it's an invitation. And it's an invitation that is based on this statement that I want you to get. That the biblical Christian response to unrighteousness in the world is twofold. It is lament and trust. Say that again. The the biblical Christian response to unrighteousness in the world is lament and trust. There's also a time and a place for action for sure, but today I want to concentrate for a few moments on this idea of lament and trust. And it's really a twofold invitation. As you pay attention to what's going on as you experience the world, lament and trust. So the first, an invitation to lament. Ecclesiastes doesn't resolve these negative feelings here. In fact, the power of this book is that it is a witness to the reality of despair. And friends, that's an invitation to you and me. It's okay to lament. It is okay to sit in the ashes of brokenness. If you've never done that, this is an invitation from God today to you. You see, our human experience is living in this tension of knowing brokenness and longing and, and, and longing for more. God has set eternity in our hearts, so we feel it again, 
and we have to live in this tension, and we can't and we shouldn't deny this, this feeling of brokenness by just trying to escape and put a happy face on everything. That is denying what we know to be wrong in our bones. And the teacher of Ecclesiastes, the gift of this book, the gift of this dark passage, the gift of the book of Job is to say, this is reality. It is okay. There is a season and a time for everything, including legitimate lament. If you start paying attention to this in the Bible, it's actually all over the place. You start reading the Psalms, the great song book or hymn book of the Old Testament, really at the center of the Bible, you'll see a lot of lament going on. For example, Psalm 6.3, the singer says, my soul is in deep anguish. How long, O Lord? Or Psalm 10.1, why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? These are moments that are invitations to us, and it is okay. And it is okay that some aspects, some chapters of our lives end with disappointment. Do you realize that? It is okay that we can't always fix our situations. I'm a fixer. Many of you are as well. I want to make everything right. I want everything to work out. But a lot of times it doesn't. And there is an appropriate time and a season and a place for lament. Now, I know many of you probably struggle with that because some of you have never learned to lament. You've never been told that it's okay for not everything to be okay. Maybe your parents didn't allow this. Stop crying. Work hard. Maybe the sense of darkness is so strong in your soul that you can't even face it. Like you think, if I open that door, it is going to overwhelm me. And so you just, I'm not even going to pay attention. I'm just going to keep denying it and just live and work, keep working harder and harder. Maybe you've been taught a, ver- a version of Christianity that's so shallow and, and superficial that there was never any place where it was okay for you to lament. Whatever the cause, God is inviting you today through this text to be honest and to to lean into that and accept that this is an appropriate part of the human experience. In fact, let me channel for you one of my favorite people, Mr. Rogers, (laughs) who is a very, very wise man. And one of the things he said that is so helpful, he said over and over, this kind of drove everything he did, whatever is mentionable is manageable. Whatever is mentionable is manageable. Entering into a space of lament is where you're starting to be honest with yourself and you can actually verbalize to the Lord and maybe to others that this is bad. And in the doing of that, it makes it more manageable. And when your friend is lamenting, there's some of the best advice you could ever be given. When your friend is lamenting, show up and shut up. Don't come in trying to fix your friend's lament. Because usually when people try to fix somebody else's lament, that's just them trying to not, they just feel too uncomfortable with the situation. If you love someone, show up and shut up and hold space for them because it's okay to sit in the ashes for a season. Fathers, I'm sure if you're honest, you have things to lament over, regrets, mistakes. All of us have things that were done to us a lot of times by fathers. 
that are worthy of lamenting over. Our God-ordained text for this morning is an invitation to be honest. That's not the only thing God has to say. And that leads to the second invitation, and it's an invitation to trust. There is a time and a season for lament, and there's a time and a season ultimately for trust. Without short-circuiting the necessity of lament, that is not the end of the story or the end of the Christian's story. The whole Bible is leaning forward to renewal. God is at work setting the world to right, and even in the midst of lamenting, and through the process of lamenting, even if all you have is a mustard seed size faith to just say, God, how long, O Lord? Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. To, to trust, to express your trust in God, even in the midst of tears and, and brokenness, that is good. And that is an appropriate way to respond to the brokenness of the world. To be active, yes, to do things. In fact, the invitation to trust is not an invitation to passivity or just you resign yourself. It is an active invitation, and that'll often involve action and doing what is good and right. But underneath all of it has to be a trust in the Lord, not taking your own vengeance into your own hands, not trying to manipulate situations, but actually sitting in the place and acknowledging the brokenness and then saying, Lord, all I can do is ask you to be at work and I trust in you to do what is right because he is at work setting the world to right. This is the good news. And that eternity set in our hearts is a compass arrow pointing us to not just look in our ashes, but to look upward and remember as Job finally did. If you read the end of Job's story, he finally saw God. He didn't get answers to all of his problems. He didn't get everything fixed but he did meet God and eventually experience the flourishing that he was made for. Now to bring this home, let me bring us back to the story I started with because back in 2005, after the real murderer of Jessica Dishon confessed, news reporters again looked up Bucky Brooks and his wife Irene to interview them. And they were very honest. They were very honest. They lamented about how difficult the decade plus had been. Now, I don't know them. I don't know what kind of people they were. One of the articles I read talked a lot about their faith and how that made them strong. So I don't know. Can't say for sure. But I do know what they said in these interviews, and it blew me away. When they asked Irene about, about this whole situation, she talked about how both Bucky's parents had died in the midst of all this. And she said, quote, all I can say to my mother-in-law and father-in-law in heaven is, Ma, it's over with. And the sheriff's department apologized to them. And when they asked Irene about that, she said, well, they're only human. They made mistakes and I don't hold a grudge against them. We all make mistakes. <laughs> I would have been like, I'm nuking the entire sheriff's department for the entire country. <laughs> Most amazingly, when they asked Bucky about how he felt about the real murderer, he said, quote, I ain't got no grudge against him for not coming forward. I, I wish he would have come sooner, but I, I ain't got no hard feelings against him. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know his faith or anything, but I can say there is something beautiful there. As someone who both was honest about the lament 
and also didn't give himself over to a life of bitterness. And I think this is an invitation that regardless of what situation you are in, the Christian response to brokenness in the world is both lament and trust. And and in the midst, even this week or today, of whatever trials, difficulties, injustices, brokenness you feel today, God is looking upon you with a smiling face and inviting you into this space of honesty and of trust. And a beautiful way to remember this A beautiful way to take hope in this is what we love to end each service with. And if you have your communion materials, if you grab those, you can grab those. And let's think together for just a second about how this connects. Because on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. He took wine and he shared it with his disciples. And what was going on there, friends? This was God's righteousness entering the world in a person and then beginning to reverse the unrighteousness of the world, to turn back the unrighteousness of the world and to begin to set the world aright. The apex of history is in this moment of Jesus' death and resurrection that begins to change the nature of the universe and God and, and, and the world that God has made, to set it to right. And so as you partake of this and as we sing a couple of closing songs, even if all you have is a mustard seed of faith today, sit in where you are and trust in the Lord. Amen. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jamison, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com slash east.